Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hunter Gatherers Podcast. My name is Philippe Koo. Today's guest is Adam Harriton, the man behind Learn Your Land, LearnYourLand.com, a wonderful resource for anyone looking to connect with the fungi and plants in the eastern woodlands of the North American continent and plants and fungi in general. His videos are very informative, very concise as well, I, I got to say. Even though he packs all sorts of wonderful information in, into them, they're really a great resource for plant identification, fungi identification, and learning more, a little bit more about the environment that they uh, are found in. I've been using them quite a lot during the lockdowns here to enrich my knowledge of the plants and animals, or mostly the plants and fungi that uh, I find around me. And we had a really wonderful conversation. If you like this conversation or any of the other videos um, or the podcast that we've done, please send us a message if there's anything you'd like to comment or share with us or send us an email at huntergathererspodcast at protonmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. With that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode and conversation with Adam Harriton. Well, welcome, uh, Adam and Techwin. It always feels funny because uh, we say hello and then we say hello again after the recording, recording begins. So it always feels a little bit um, artificial, but uh, that's how it is, I guess. We'll figure that out in subsequent episodes. But I'm, I'm very glad that you're here, um, Adam, to join us here. Adam from Learn Your Land. I've been watching your videos, like I said just before, but I've been watching them and learning so much from uh, your videos because you're in a similar, I mean, I guess we're in the same kind of environment, um, natural habitat. And uh, yeah, I've been watching your videos to learn about mushrooms and plants and, and tree identification. And it's been really, uh, it's been really great. So welcome. Um, it's really great to have you here. Yeah, thanks. And I'll say hello again. And I don't mind saying it a couple of times because we just met. So I don't think there's enough hellos that we can exchange between us. We haven't exhausted them yet. Yeah. So hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and uh, yeah, for, I guess I, my first question that I have for you is why did you cut off your beautiful, long, luscious blonde hair there that you had? It's funny. People still talk about that. And that was five years ago. <laughs> and uh I mean, you're still talking about it, I guess. <laughs> As a you're one of them. One just I don't mind. I don't mind when people comment on the hair, though. I mean, it's interesting because I've gone through cycles of longer hair and shorter hair and longer hair and shorter hair. Uh, I guess I don't know why I cut it that last time. It's just one of those things that I felt like it had to go for the time being, and the I never cycle. really grew it back. But I've had it longer <laughs> in years past. I mentioned earlier that I used to play in a band, and you kind of had to have long hair in the band that I was playing in. Uh, so that's. And actually, when I was growing up, I had longer hair, too. I was inspired by, you know, grunge music and hair metal and things like that. And everybody had long hair. Um, I think Techwin just had long hair, too, and he's just cut it as well. It's a lot oh, easier yeah. to manage with shorter hair, but there is a coolness factor, I think, with having longer hair. I don't think my hair actually looked that good long. I think, personally, it's easier to manage, and I think it looks better shorter, but everybody has their own opinion. Uh, it seems that the YouTube commenters are 
are split on whether I should keep it long or short. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, uh, you're not giving us, you're not answering the long or short debate as to where you will go next with it. I think it'll be short for a long time. I mean, as I get okay. older, I think, I mean, I don't think hair improves in quality the older that a human gets. Unfortunately not. No, I think mine used to look a lot better when I was younger. So, I mean, I don't think it looks bad now, but I think as I grow older, I don't think the hair, I think this is the best it'll ever look. Well, um, well, Keanu Reeves is still doing the long hair, but now we're getting really into just this point be the, the hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've, got, I've got a take on that. I mean, you said sure. that it's the coolest factor. So that's kind of my excuse in Malaysia is literally the coolness of short hair because it's, uh, I, I found, you know, when I had long hair in the tropics, the back of my neck would get all sweaty. And so, and, and then um, recently a, uh, I was giving a lecture on uh, to some anthropology students, and I, I pointed out to them that it, it's actually only the uh, well, it's uh, it's it seems to be a Neanderthal uh, trait, this uh, straight long hair that the, we we the three of us have, and it was seemed to have evolved because the Neanderthals went out of Africa, they went north, and then. Uh, yeah, having long straight hair helps keep you warm. So it was actually adaptive. Well, that's um, why I'm keeping mine long, at least for the winter, because I can't stand having the cold wind on my neck. Yeah. Oh, it's so cold here right now. Yeah. So practical value. Yeah. The Neanderthal genes uh, mm. and lifestyle. I'm still living that. Mm. What, what was your band name, uh, Adam, if you don't mind me asking? Is that it something can easy, you can just, it can easily be found if you just search online? Okay, all right. We were not big by any stretch of the imagination, just kids having fun. Oh, okay. Well, you managed to come up here and play Toronto. Yeah, I forget the name of the since. club. Uh, even if you mentioned some, I, I mean, fine. I could Google it really quickly, but yeah, uh, it was fun. I always like playing in Toronto. Nice, people. that's cool. Nice, yeah. Well, uh I guess we should talk about foraging and stuff like that as well, since you're here. But yeah, I was wondering about learn your land and and I guess the greater why of learn your land. Like you want to tell people about the beauty and the 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 interesting things and how they can connect to um, um, the plants and and nature around them. But why 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 is that important? Or like why did that motivate you if if that even was the motivation maybe it was to make those you know maybe it was to get whatever what was your i guess motivation for learn your land yeah to get rich <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding <laughs> i don't think i'd be in this business if that were the case <laughs> uh it was i mean it's changed over the years and i think it's appropriate that it does change because you know, we evolve, our interests change, our hair changes. Yeah. Uh, so the motivation behind the business and the why, I guess, should change a little bit as well. Originally, I got into this stuff because I was interested in health and nutrition. So I was interested in feeding my body healthy foods. And I came to realize that wild foods were pretty healthy. And in many cases, they were healthier than most things I could find in a grocery store, even most things that I could grow myself. And in order to find the wild foods one of the steps involved in doing that is to be able to identify them 
So I got real heavily interested in identifying different plants and mushrooms and trees. And it wasn't just the edible stuff. I mean, I remember very vividly one day when I realized I want to know everything, not just the edible things. Like I would look at a plant and kind of realize that it probably wasn't an edible plant, you know, that I could turn into food. It probably wasn't poisonous, but it just looked like, you know, a standard weed or something like that. But I wanted to know what it was. And it hit me in that moment, like, wow, I really want to know everything that's out here. And I understand it's a very lofty goal that will never, ever be achieved. There's just too many things to learn. But I was naive back then. I still am naive to a very large degree. But I thought I could learn as much as I possibly could. And I've still been on that journey of just learning and learning and learning. I'm still interested in the health and nutrition aspect of it. It doesn't always come through in my work publicly. But it's something I think about every day. It's something that I practice every day. I consider myself a student of health, uh, not just the stuff that I put into my body as feeding health, but into my mind as well, into my spirit as well. And over the years, I guess it kind of morphed into teaching other people the importance of developing a connection to land as an essential requirement of being a human being because I truly feel like human beings are place-based organisms. I can't say that about every single organism on the planet because I don't know every single organism on the planet, but it seems that a common thread among a lot of organisms is that they are place-based. Even migratory animals still are faithful to places and not every place on every square inch of the earth. Like they're rooted in different places for long stretches of time. And I thought, well, humans traditionally, to a large degree, not in every single case, and I know we moved around, but we didn't move around as quickly as we can move around today. Mm-hmm. And so you are still in places for longer stretches of time than you are today. And I understand the value of traveling. I understand the value of being nomadic to some degree and moving around. And that's been a part of human history. But the people who did move around still learned their places while they moved around. They didn't just move through and put blinders on it. I don't care about this place. I don't want to engage with it. No, you had to engage with it in order to move to the next place. Uh, And so I see that as a fundamental requirement today in the 21st century for humans to kind of not return to that, but move forward in that direction of establishing a connection to place. Because if you don't establish that connection, you're going to feel fundamentally lost for the rest of your life. And I would go so far as to say, you're going to feel homeless for the rest of your life because you don't have a place to call home. And you just see this in the way people interact, not just with the world, but with each other, uh, in the economy, in the market, uh, in what they say and what they do. It's just very obvious to me that humans, to a large degree, not everywhere, because I only know what's going on in my small corner of the world, but a lot of people just don't have a true connection to the place that they live in. And I think through Learn Your Land, I'm trying to instill that into people. Well, it's definitely helped me um, connect and gain a greater feeling of understanding for this place, even just the smallest thing, one learning one organism and knowing its characteristics. And there's something, even if the name that we give it isn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't call itself, um, us, what is it? Uh, uh, Urtica dioica, you know, the, the, stinging nettle, but just being able to greet it and know it makes you feel connected to the place and 
and cherish the place more. And uh, it's definitely your videos have helped me. And that's it, something that what you've just said, I can, um, I very much agree with. And I, I felt that I think we all feel that, that emptiness that you've described or the, the opposite of what you described of being feeling at home and then not having that understanding of place or connection to place and reverence for place that, that the lack of that has, is resulted in what we, what we're doing here or what we're doing here results in, in uh, that feeling of homelessness, as you described. Um, I don't know if tech, when you have anything to say to that, yeah, well, I, I I think we're all three of us like uh, city folk, or, or at least uh, not really from the countryside. But uh, it's 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 particularly the case in uh, with groups that like the one that uh, Phil and I work with with the Batek, that their their connection to the land and the the place goes so much beyond what the authorities see and, and the authorities have have tried to bring these communities into the mainstream by um, giving them houses encouraging them to settle down uh, without um, really acknowledging the the value that uh, the original uh, land has to them and this is, um, I think this is something that is repeated in many parts of the world in that um, the original land is often just seen uh, from point of view of commodities like timber or um, like where I am, um, the potential to grow plantations or to turn into an urban, uh, like we have this term development, which basically means like building houses and 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 that's seen as um, as oh, it, it, like you can, no one can really challenge it, and they're, they're to, it's the mainstream is so strong saying that all oh, right, you, you don't want to be stuck in the past. You want to be uh, make things better, and development is about making things better. But the real risk is that we lose touch of uh, of uh, with the land, and 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 uh, you you mentioned specific species uh, as a good example of the, the connection with the land and that's something that's really lost among most young um, uh, city folk like we don't know what the what the native species are um, so that that connection with the land is really broken um, and, and and there are many examples of that and be nice to, to talk through some of the ones that are important for us mm -hmm. Adam, did you grow up uh, with much nature exposure or with a mentor or was that part of your growing up or is that something you really took upon yourself? I grew up in the suburbs. There was a small plot of wooded land behind my house, which is unbelievably still there in the middle of a suburb. Like to see a patch of woods still there after 30 years it's just unbelievable today because when i go home most other places especially along these secondary highways that used to be farms uh, are just now car dealerships or banks or mm -hmm. any other number of businesses i didn't have an intimate connection with nature growing up but i spent time outside like a lot of time outside 
but I didn't know any plants. I didn't know any mushrooms. I didn't know any trees. Nature was a backdrop, but I felt comfortable being out there. I mean, most of my time was just spent playing football or baseball or soccer in the yards with my brothers or riding bikes up and down the street. But fortunately we did have woods. We would build forts in there. We would swing on vines. And so I didn't have a fear of going in there. Like I didn't have a fear of snakes or ticks or any wild creature that could be in there. Uh, but I didn't have a mentor or anything like that. So it wasn't until I got a little older that I really had to learn this stuff and dive in and find mentors and really start researching this stuff. But I guess having that very, very small exposure did influence me to go a bit deeper later in life. Uh, but it was a very small amount. It was basically ne basically non-existent growing up, but it was barely there and enough, I guess. Yeah, I think we had very similar experiences here. I also grew up in a suburb and there was a small, maybe uh, 100 meters by 100 meters wood lot and yeah we'd ride bikes there and so on and and then uh in germany my, where my mother's from we would go and they lived out in the countryside so we'd be there building forts catching frogs that sort of thing walking through you know the hilly landscape um but yeah just to get back to tequin's question are there some experiences with specific like plants and i guess there are there are neighbors right these plants and animals are with with our Plants and animals. I've, I've got a specific oh. question about yeah. that. Like, so can can you remember what was the first wild thing uh, that you that you ate, and and how did you feel about uh, about actually eating something that you didn't get from a sup supermarket? Well, going back to growing up, even though I wasn't immersed at all like in nature or the wilderness at least not consciously i remember picking black raspberries though mm -hmm. like riding bikes and just picking black raspberries and mm -hmm. i thought it was really cool but it didn't really hit me too deeply like wow i'm not getting something from the grocery store mm -hmm. or wow this is wild food so it was it was just something that i did occasionally with my dad and my brothers but when i got older maybe when i was in my late teens i remember going on a wild food walk for the first time and it was in the city of Pittsburgh, so they pointed out things, but we didn't eat it because it's probably just too toxic. There's probably mm -hmm. dog urine over everything, mm -hmm. but at least I could see things and it opened up my eyes into a different world of, wow, there's actually food that you could potentially eat out here, but I'll just remember what this looks like and find a cleaner spot and then go harvest it then. But one of the first plants that really changed my perspective of food was stinging nettle. So you mentioned Urtica dioica not too long ago, Phil, and that was one of the plants that really helped me develop a, an intimate and a different connection with the wild. And I remember finding it not too far from my home, but I transplanted it into a little lot outside the apartment where I was renting at the time. And I'm sure it has just taken over by now because I used to cut it back. It was just, I mean, it's a weed, you know, so it grows prolifically and it would grow so high and people who, didn't have any experience with that plant would come over and accidentally sit on it or accidentally <laughs> walk through it. And I would say, oh, you got to respect that plant. It's stinging metal. Uh, and I would trim it back because I knew that if it got too big, it, it would just take over completely. But I moved out many years ago, but the nettle is still there. And I'm sure it's like a forest of stinging metal right now. Oh, but wow. that was probably the first plant that really did it for me. And I still really appreciate that plant. It's very nutritious. It's very medicinal. It could be used in many utilitarian ways. 
Uh, it's very abundant. It can teach you a lot about plants. It can teach you a lot about food. It can teach you a lot about health. It can teach you a lot about life. It's funny you mentioned um, how that was your first, uh, I guess, is your gateway, your gateway into foraging or, or connection. And as, and you were saying also, like, as a kid, you were never scared of any of the ticks or the the snakes or anything. But growing up and when we would visit Germany, there's so much nettle everywhere. And that was the that was what we were afraid of was stinging nettle because we'd chase each other or fall out of a tree and then land into a patch of stinging nettle and then come, you know, we'd go crying back to, and like just stinging for the rest of the day and into tomorrow. So that, that was one of the plants. So that, that was my experience with stinging nettle. And like you said too, later you gain a whole different appreciation for this plant. And I remember my mom um, saying that whenever we had sting nettle issues, she'd be like, oh, we used to use that on our hair. Um, like you'd make a, I don't know what they would do actually with it, some sort of uh, juice. And I guess they'd use it on their hair. So, and then I was in the market earlier this year, like a farmer's market. And one of the the, the vendors there, they're Polish family, and they're saying that they use it. They make a, a juice out of it and they spray it on um, their crops to keep the pests away. So interesting uses for Urtica dioca, sting nettle. One of my favorites as well. And I really liked your video on it. It was really nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I have a couple, I think, on sting nettle. Mm -hmm. But if it's the one that I'm, that I'm thinking that you're thinking of, yeah, that was a good video. I had longer like, hair in that one. <laughs> is it the one where I think you, it's a very young one and you're saying like, if you're wondering why I can touch this plant, it's because it's very young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one. No, really yeah, that's like that. actually the most popular video on YouTube for the Lord oh, is it? channel. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I would have known that going in, I would have done it so much differently. Because you have <laughs> no idea. You just go out and film a video and then just put it online. And then you kind of forget about it, move on to the next one. But for mm -hmm. some reason, the YouTube algorithm picked that thing up and just ran with it. And so to this day, it's just, it always outperforms every other video. I don't know why, but I kind of kick myself sometimes thinking like, I should have done this. I should have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have worn the headband. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of headband comments there. Quite a few. <laughs> uh, Techwin, do you have any uh, interesting stinging nettle experiences? Yeah, yeah. So we don't have stinging nettles in Malaysia, but I did uh, encounter them when uh, because my, my mom's from uh, the uk and so on holiday in wales it was it was yeah it was definitely one of these funny things because you're coming from a tropical country uh, which like you have the imp the impression that the jungle in the tropics is dangerous but no there was nothing like stinging nettles in like because as a kid you know uh playing around in the weeds and you're like oh what was that i got stung and, and it will sting you through your jeans i was like my goodness uh, it's uh, um but i i remember uh my mother pointing out that I don't know if you have this in the States, but there's uh, 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 another plant that grows along with it called a dock leaf. And you can take the dock leaf and then rub it on this, uh, if you get stung by the nettle and it's a kind of a, an antidote. I thought that was pretty cool that it, it like grows alongside uh, its, uh, its own antidote. Um, and then the other story, it was like my mother's grandfather apparently he would boil it for tea 
but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know anyone uh, who uh, who does that uh, anymore. But yeah, it was uh, it was definitely. I think you know two people right anymore. here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that one other story about the stinging nettles was that um, I I would say that. Um, I remember telling my aunt, and she's passed away recently, but uh, I was telling her that's the one thing I didn't like about the countryside in the UK are the nettles. And she would say, oh, but they're the home of all the butterflies. So like, like a positive spin on, on, on uh, uh, another positive spin, in addition to all the things that uh, Adam mentioned. It's the ecological benefits. The stock fiber is also great for um, for cordage. Yeah. So we don't have beautiful rattan around here, yeah. so we have to make uh, fibrous um, cordage. Uh, so yeah, the 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 uh, stinging nettle makes really great cordage, and I th it, it used to be I think because um, you're quite into the um, paleoanthropology of of Europe and so on as well, Tequin. That I think the the nettle was the go-to the go-to for fibers in the past i think mm. yeah do you like uh, twist it yeah so yeah you do twist it um separate the fibers soften them separate them and then uh sort of i, I don't know how you, i can't describe it verbally yeah. but yeah yeah sort of I, I, I i guess it's uh, I, I think there, there are quite a few videos on that and you, you let it dry first and then uh, you come back after like a week or so and then it, it it's it's easier to turn it into cordage. Adam, are you into any of the so-called uh, quote-unquote primitive skills as well? I've dabbled in them, but nothing too serious. I mean, it's it's something that's been in the back of my mind, but I've been so busy focusing just on identification and feeding myself and making medicines and teaching mm -hmm. other people that I haven't had much time to work on the different skills involved, but it does interest me. I see a tremendous value in it. And maybe one of these days I'll spend more time looking into that stuff. Do you have around you friends and other like community members? I mean, community these days is sort of like, well, do we even really have community? But uh, do you have like a social world where there's people who are into primitive skills and other people who are you're going foraging with and who have other skills where you um, complement each other? I guess kind of. There's not, I mean, I live in Western Pennsylvania. I don't think there's a big primitive skills community here. You'll see some classes every now and then pop up. A lot of state parks host the classes, but it's very introductory. And honestly, I mean, this is my excuse for not getting into it much more deeply is that we don't have a big community of that around here. But what we do have is a massive community of mushroom foragers. It's insane. We've got a mushroom club that has over a thousand members in it. Wow. Just like 10 minutes away from me where I live, like north of Pittsburgh. And that's why mushrooms has been a focus in my life uh, for the past couple of years. We've got a big plant community just identifying wild plants. We have a botanical society and that's why I'm into plants as well. Uh, so it just seems like, you know, what's around, what community is around, that, that is what will be inspirational to somebody. Uh, but I'm sure if I lived somewhere else where the primitive skills community was bigger, I'd probably be much bigger into that. Um, 
I mean, that's one of the things that I recommend for people trying to get into any skill. If you want to learn, find the community because it's very hard to do something by yourself. And there is a community somewhere. And if there isn't, you can build it yourself. So I guess one day I can build the primitive skills community around here to a much greater degree than it is. But um, I'm content with the skills that I have right now. I'm always looking to sharpen my edge though. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's been in the direction of identification, but also hunting as well. Hunt like uh, um, animal hunting. Yeah, mainly Sorry. deer hunting. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's I've been trying to do that the last years. Unsuccessful. Um, I started with trad bow this year, uh, traditional bow. Mm -hmm. So I, I primitive skills interested me, and I, I um, purchased a custom longbow from a, a guy in Toronto. And so yeah, he's been giving me tips, and I have some hunter uh, very quite experienced hunters uh, that I go out with, but they, they mostly uh, do gun rifle and um, crossbow. And it is, hunting is very difficult. It is so difficult. I don't know if you've been successful yet or how long you've been hunting, but maybe you could talk about that. I'm actually, I was one of the questions I was going to ask you is if you're into hunting as well. So nobody in my immediate family is a hunter. I don't even think people in my extended family, no, nobody's a hunter. Same here. And so growing up, it's just, it wasn't a world I was exposed to at all. And I grew up in the suburbs. So again, no hunters. I never saw hunters. I never saw people wearing bright orange, which is what you have to wear legally around here, at least during deer season when you're shooting uh, firearms. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I became a vegetarian in high school. I'm not a vegetarian currently, but I was listening to a lot of punk music at the time and a lot of the politics in that music was like anti-hunter stance. And so I just bought it, you know, I thought, yeah, you're right. Like, why would you injure another animal for food? It just doesn't make sense to me. Eat plants and mushrooms because you're not injuring anything, right? I don't truly believe that today, but that's what I thought at the time. And then when I got into wild food foraging and learning how to feed myself and realizing that a vegetarian or vegan diet wasn't working for my specific body, that my body does really well with animal protein, well, I wanted to harvest it myself as much mm -hmm. as I possibly could. So 100% of my meat doesn't come from the wild. But during the winter season, a good portion of it does because that's when the deer season is open to us here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and luckily, I encountered a mentor who is a hunter. Like, that's what he is. If there's one word to describe him, mm -hmm. just hunter. You walk into his house everything about his house is just like this guy is a hunter antlers everywhere skulls everywhere knives and of hunters yeah just every camo everywhere everything's neatly placed badges it's not like and yeah a complete mess or anything trophies with like yeah yeah all over the place you know like a butcher's table like this it's mm -hmm. not like he just dabbles in it like no this is his is a hunter this is what they look forward to all year is oh, hunting yeah. season yeah yeah, it's incredible. I never met anybody like this. And luckily, I had an open mind at the time. And I got so fortunate because this guy also wanted to teach as well mm -hmm. and pass on his skills. He didn't say that, but you can tell that's what he wants to do. And so we just met. I don't know how we were able to accomplish this feat of somebody who wants to learn this skill and somebody who wants to teach this skill. Two people very dedicated to each of those paths, cross paths together for many years. And he's still a good friend of mine and he still teaches me. And so he started taking me out just rifle hunting for deer. 
Mm-hmm. And every year that I've gone out with him, I've successfully harvested deer. Oh, that Some years I've harvested a lot of deer. And it's just been life-changing. Like, I know we throw that term around a lot, but literally, I mean, you mentioned that hunting's very hard. With a rifle, it's a little easier, obviously, than a traditional bow. I mean, your chances of killing a deer are much higher, I think. I've never done it with a traditional bow, but it just seems like it would be with a high-powered rifle. Yeah, for, for us to do rifle, I have to drive quite far. I don't know how far you have to drive, but the G the here, the greater Toronto area is a huge sprawl of suburbs. So, and then Southern Ontario is all farmland uh, where you can only do shotgun. So um, the shotgun easier than trad bow as well. And we do go out with um, shotgun in the, uh, the gun season, but yeah, in, in between that, I'm, I just really wanted to try trad bow and it's, and he was like, oh, you know, use a crossbow, whatever. And, uh, and I have, I'm not whatever, but I thought if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to, I'm going to get the trad bow. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to freeze my butt off. And uh, I'm just going to have that as my experience, whether I get a, a deer or not. But then, you know, we also go out with the other tools as well, but we just haven't been able to go to all the necessary, the places that he used to. My, my mentor is about, he's 82 years old. <laughs> yeah still hunting. We went moose hunting, um, up uh, Northern Ontario recently, like this season as well. And he was saying it was much too warm seasonally. It it would normally be colder. Um, so the moose didn't really come out to feed where they normally do. So yeah, I'm still looking for my, um, my, uh, first kills and, uh, I'm sure they will be life-changing. Just the process of going out has been life-changing as well. So it's very interesting to hear. <clears throat> Are you um, planning to, I, I imagine it's much more difficult and a, a whole different realm to start discussing that potentially on your channel, hunting and, and um, animal harvesting. It could potentially turn a lot of people off, bring a whole different demographic in. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I Many years ago, I released a video on uh, Chaga. The chaga fungus, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, but I made a yeah. drink out of it. It's literally the first or second video I ever published, and it's a recipe video. And I use butter in the video. And to this day, like seven years later, I get comments on, how could you use butter? Like, not only the saturated fat and the cholesterol, but there are cruelty-free alternatives, you know, to butter. Like you could use a plant-based butter or you could just skip the butter altogether. And if it, like, mm-hmm. really, that's where we are today. Um, so yeah, I could imagine that if I started talking about deer hunting on my channel, that if some people get offended by me using butter, imagine what they would say if I would talk about deer hunting. Not that I really care, honestly. Uh, and I, I did think about it this past year about bringing more of that onto the channel because I don't talk about much of that stuff at all. I mean, I talk about animals, but I'm talking about the natural history of animals. Hmm. Like I have a video on frogs and I have a video on cicadas and a video on swans and stuff like that. I don't have any videos on deer processing or any animal processing yet, but I mean, if I do evolve in this direction and I plan to get more involved in it personally, hunting for more things, becoming more familiar with hunting, different skills involved with it, different animals, different kinds of uh, methods of take, whether it's a bow or a different kind of firearm. And if I get more involved with it, maybe it'll come out more in the channel. Uh, but I mean, for learning the land here in Western Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. 
it is astounding how much you can learn by hunting that you can't just get by observing something and not hunting it. Mm -hmm. Like I thought I knew deer, you know, I see them all the time. They're in my backyard all the time. You see one literally every single day. But then if you have to go out and hunt a deer and you're unsuccessful day after day, after day, after day, year after year, after year, (laughs) you learn so much as long as you don't give up. You know, this year was a perfect example of it. I mentioned that I was hunting with that mentor and he's taken me out every year. This year he couldn't go out. He had a health Mm -hmm. emergency. This was the first year that I didn't have him along with me. And my first thought was, I'm not going to go. He has all the connections to the private land where we hunt. He usually guides me. He helps me with the butchering process and all of this. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, well, I can't do it without you. And my first thought after hanging up the phone and hearing him say, you know, I can't, can't," he said, I can't go out this year. So I thought, you know, I'm not going to go out either. And then I thought about it more and more. And I talked to some people. And I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll go to some public lands and I'll, I'll try to figure it out. What a learning curve. What a learning process. I mean, finding a new piece of property, scouting it out, never hunting public land before. I learned so much. I, I can't tell you how much I learned. It's just unbelievable. And it's hard to go through that experience of all the trials, all the tribulations, all the failures, all the like negative thinking and then finally coming out successful and then re-entering civilian life after that, having learned what you learned, having saw what you saw. And I know it's just hunting deer, but for me, it means a lot. Like it really does mean a lot. And to take that experience and to go back into civilian life and not be able to share that with people and they have no idea what you experience and what you learn, it's kind of tough. And I would never compare it to an initiation because I understand that, you know, in traditional indigenous cultures, their initiations are much more severe than, hey, just go out and kill a deer. But it kind of felt like that to some very small degree. And I almost thought, you know, it's like going through an initiation, but not having a culture to support you when you come back out of it. Mm -hmm. And I still kind of feel like that. And I think about all those days that I spent this past season out in the woods learning and failing having all these negative thoughts, coming home, trying to strategize before going back out, trying to time it right with the weather, trying still hunting this year, which is where you actually kind of sneak around the woods rather than just posting and waiting and then being successful and then not being able to share your story with a lot of people. And I know I'm sharing it kind of to some degree with you guys, but that's something that's been on my mind to some degree. It's very encouraging to me because I, my, well, our, my season's over and I was unsuccessful. And I, I, I always think like, I did, I, I didn't put enough effort in. I just didn't do. You still probably learn though, you know? I did I mean, learn. There's probably I did some learn. things that you learn that you can Absolutely. bring to the table I, next year. I mean, this is the first year I shot trad bow too. So that in itself was something. And then learning the bow and, and how to move around with the bow in there and thinking about spots and just the motivation to get out there more and talking to more people and um, what you were saying about not being able to share this experience, I think like Tequin and I, we read a lot about uh, hunter-gatherer, forager peoples, and hunting is so much a part of their lives. It's it's a for the men, it's a it's a it's almost a daily thing. And if it's not a daily thing, well, if they're not hunting every day, they're maintaining their tools, they're finding the poison, they're they're thinking about hunting, they're looking at the weather. So it's it's their whole lives revolve around uh, hunting 
uh, especially the men. And, and then what you said about not being able to share that experience, the hunting in, in those cultures is you, once you hunt something, it's not yours. It's everyone wants a piece of it. And there's, there's a expectation that, you know, this person gets it and that person gets it and then they'll distribute it further. And I think there's something that's sort of missing when we go to the grocery store or even when we, yeah, even, even in hunting, I've noticed that here with the hunters that I, that I know when they make some, when my, my mentor, when he, whenever he talks about a kill or something, he's like, they're getting something. And, and uh, whenever he has meat that someone else gave him, I get some as well. And it, it sort of gets passed along so that I think that's part of hunting as well is that mm, that sharing. And I think people don't really um, from who, who don't hunt, don't really understand that or appreciate that. I mean, how could you, if you're not a part of it? So I don't know, tech, when you've, you visited the, um, the Batek quite a bit more, the communities much more and, I don't know if you have anything to, to say about the hunting and the sharing of the meat. Yeah, it's an obligation. Um, it, it's, it's common among many hunter-gatherer communities that, that they're egalitarian, but the, the, the way they uh, keep their group together is that there's an obligation to share almost everything that you collect in terms of food. And so no one could uh, possibly go hungry in the group, even if they were unsuccessful. For example, you know, if if you were unsuccessful hunting, but your, your neighbor was not, then you would, uh, you, you balance out because the neighbor was, is obliged to share with you. But I I want to talk briefly about this, um, yeah, the ethics and the conservation. And uh, my background is uh, is wildlife conservation. And I mean, it's not terribly widely known that a lot of the early conservationists were hunters and they came to love animals or uh, came to be interested in conserving animals mainly because uh, of the, the fact that they uh, learned about the animals through hunting. And, and that's um, certainly still the case. And uh, what, what I like is the idea that if you have um, killed a wild animal to, for food, you then have an obligation towards sustaining the population of that animal. So it's especially the case when you're talking about a local population that you're then quite intimately tied to that population. And and so you have, uh, yes, it's it's almost, it's it's sort of like um, a type of morality, which well, not many people talk about because I, I would say, Definitely, where I, I I stay in the city, most people are not hunters, um, and so they, they don't have that. It, it's get back to what we're talking about right at the start. Is this link, this connection with the land uh, through the hunting? So, I, yeah, have, have you heard that before, Adam? This idea that uh, that yeah that you you now have an uh, an obligation to to towards the population. I guess. It's not this. It's not so much an issue for deer, which is quite abundant. But hmm. yeah, I have heard it to some degree. And if 
I hadn't heard it. I feel it. I mean, I feel it even with foraging mushrooms and plants. Okay. A lot of people talk about conservation with animals, Mm. rightfully so. Mm. Even with deer, though, I mean, there's people here in Pennsylvania, and we have got a lot of deer, as you can imagine. I'm sure you got a lot of deer in Toronto as well. Mm -hmm. But depending on which hunters you talk to, some people say, oh, we don't have that much. We don't have a, a huge herd of deer anymore. It's not like it used to be in the 50s and 60s where, you know, you would see so many more. And they lament that we don't have that much deer. Although you drive around, you see so much deer out there. But our hunting dollars do pay for deer conservation, at least here in Pennsylvania, and I'm sure all across the United States and possibly in Canada and elsewhere in the world as well. Mm-hmm. So it's hunters to a very big degree that do support conservation efforts, whether they know it or they don't know it just because of the firearms that they buy or the taxes on the ammunition or through the sales of hunting licenses. But I don't see a lot of people thinking that way when they forage for mushrooms to some degree with plants as well, because some people understand that, you know, when you dig up a plant, clearly you can be potentially threatening that population if it is a rare or vulnerable plant, picking weeds, picking very prolific plants, picking the aerial portions and fruits, maybe not so much when it comes to mushrooms, you know, there's a big debate, whether it's sustainable or not, whether the populations are declining or not. Uh, it's a bit of a sticky subject these days, but I think about it. I don't think it's a bad thing to think about it, no matter what you harvest. Um, but it does come out, especially when I do harvest deer. So, well, can I, sorry, can go I just ahead, jump, yeah, go ahead, uh, jump in there? So a, a very specific question. Do you, like, if, if you see a, a grove of uh, um, mushrooms, um, might uh, uh, might you leave one or two of them behind rather than harvesting all of them? It all depends. I mean, when I see mushrooms and I'm going to forage, I mean, no matter what I pick out of the ground, I can't help but think that, I'm taking something right now. Like that is my action right now, taking. Yes, I can be giving at the same time because if you're harvesting fruits, you can be inadvertently scattering seeds around. Or if you're snipping roots, you can inadvertently be propagating that species if a cutting of that root gets into another part of the property and it takes off and starts sending out other suckers and other shoots. But with mushrooms, I mean, it it just depends. I... uh, a lot of people just have this belief that, yeah, you could take every single mushroom and it's not going to do anything. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, you could actually be propagating the, the spores, particular yeah. species because of the spores that you're carrying hmm. around the woods, even though there's really no good evidence to suggest that that ever really happens. Hmm. But I'm just at this point in my life now where when I go into the woods, I understand that, you know, I'm a visitor here uh, because I wasn't born here. I wasn't raised here. I don't spend all my time here. So I have the privilege of just going back home and do a heated house where I can cook my food, I can go on the internet, and then I can go back into the woods whenever I want. So it's not truly my home, those woods. So I see myself as a guest and as a visitor. So no matter when I go in there or what I do, what what intentions I have, I understand myself as being a guest. And anything that I leave is something that I am taking, even if it's a mushroom. Um, But to answer your question more explicitly, if I see a large patch of mushrooms, I'm usually going to leave a couple behind. Mm. All right. That's great. Whether there's scientific proof mm. that that's beneficial or not, I'm probably mm. just going to do that anyway. Yeah. What you, um, we just 
mentioned there about being a guest in the woods and also what you're saying about earlier on in the discussion, how uh, you, you know, we, we are not, we're lost without being part of nature. We're, we're homeless without being nature. It's, um, it's the state that we're, we're all in as um, industrial, you know, uh, product p- uh, people who are in industrial society. And uh, it's hard to remedy, especially because we're, we didn't grow up in the woods like you know, indigenous people. Um, and I think to me personally, uh, and I have to thank uh, Charles Eisenstein, who's an author that I really like reading for pointing this out that there's this, and, and I'm sure other people as well, that there's this idea that humans are not part of nature. Um, or that we're here to overcome nature. Everything about um, society and, and civilization is there to control and even even destroy nature that is potentially bad or limits us. And to then have certain areas where nature is pristine and preserved and humans should not be involved in those places except for to take pictures, leave nothing but footsteps and, or, or is it leave nothing but footsteps and take only pictures. And I think this is a flawed, um, it's a flawed perception or, or narrative that we're operating on because clearly um, it's not working. I mean, every, the, operating on this model, we, we build more factory farms and, uh, and then we say, well, we have that, we have that provincial park or that state park and we have that national forest. So, you know, that's good. And everything else we can just, we can sustainably log or whatever it is, build a wind farm and, 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 and think that we're somehow preserving nature. But I think what you're doing, uh, Adam, with helping people connect to just the, the, the tree outside their window and the the mushrooms growing on their lawn, it really does subvert that narrative and say, Hey, no, you are, we're all part of this. Um, this, even if we've been conditioned and we've grown up in these, you know, factory human conditions, which are the suburbs that we are still part of nature. We, that is our home, even if we're not comfortable in it, but helping us to be more comfortable. And it really subverts that narrative. Um, I don't know. This is a very f- philosophical point, but I imagine you've thought of that and uh, tech one as well. If there's anything that comes up from my little rant there uh, that you'd like to comment on, I'd love to hear it. Maybe to formulate into questions, like what, what are your thoughts on humans being part of nature? I guess you already addressed that so on uh, earlier, but yeah. What, what do you, what do you think is, um, yeah, actually, I don't have a clear and distinct <laughs> question out of that whole ramble there, but. I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think about that a lot too. You know, is it best to just leave nature to its own devices and then we do our things over here and then keep that protected? And a lot of people have that view, but you still got to realize that we rely on those things from nature the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, a lot of the foods and medicines that we consume still come from those places. And I find it very difficult to teach people how to appreciate and to love wild spaces without forming an intimate connection with them. And to gain an intimate connection, 
one of the most intimate acts that a human being can engage in is eating, where you literally put something into your body and build yourself out of something. And so if you forage for something from the woods, or if you hunt an animal, you're literally taking, to use that word again, something from the wilderness and putting it inside your body and becoming it to some degree. I know that doesn't sound too scientific. I don't care. It's how I feel. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth to it. How can you teach somebody to appreciate wild spaces if they don't engage in something like that? To just read about it, to just look at pictures, to just hang out on the outskirts of it, or to just walk through. Like, how can you care about a person without getting to know that person? Like, that's what a relationship is for. That's what uh, a marriage is for, you know? That's what a family is for. If you just know the names of things, if you just see pictures of people, do you really care about them? Do you know anything about them? You might know their name. You might know what they look like. You might see them from time to time, but that's it. But if you live with them and you both have shared fate together and you do things together, of course, you're going to start to appreciate them. You're going to start to care about them a lot more. You're going to want to protect them and you're going to love them. Whether you want to do it or not, that's just going to happen. Well, how is it any different with wild spaces? And so I do see both sides though. Like I see that there's a huge influx of people who have no connection with nature going into these wild spaces and treating it like a shopping mall. But I was there once and I learned and I wish more people would almost be that mentor that the deer guy is for me or the deer person is for you to teach people, no, here's actually a different way to do it. And I understand that I don't always do this with the work that I do through Learn Your Land, but I'm trying. And when I do take people out in person, they see me go out into the woods with more of that mindset where, you know, we are still guests. I truly still believe that if you weren't born and raised in the woods and you have 100% vested interest in it and you support, and you support yourself 100% through the woods or wherever you live, it could be near the ocean, coastal areas or near deserts or things like that. But for me, it's the woods. But I see a need for human beings to engage intimately with the wild space in order to want to care about it, want to protect it, and to actually make those things come to fruition. You have specific, like, I love hearing specific stories of, like, encounters or certain foraging trips that you've had or experiences that really you could share with us like one story of a moment where you were out there in the woods and really connected with a plant. I think you touched on it earlier with, with uh, stinging nettle, but if there are any ones that stand out, maybe a deer hunting trip where you, well, like, what was that like? Well, I mean, this past there? year was, I mean, Every time I go out and I hunt, it's always memorable. Like I always write it down because it's always memorable. And I don't forget these experiences, but this year was just different. And I know it wasn't a plant or a mushroom, but it's still something from the wilderness. But this year was just different because it was just me. I didn't have my guide with me in a completely new area that I had never scouted out before, trying to figure things out on my own. And it was a very difficult year, but it only made it that much more memorable. But it's interesting because, you know, 
people study skills on natural navigation. People study skills on uh, how to be more cold tolerant. People uh, do all these different biohacks, you know, like get up earlier, stay up later, you know, how to calm your mind. When you go out and hunt, that takes care of everything. Everything. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I think they call that a force multiplier where it just like checks all the boxes, you know, like cold immersion, check, getting up early, check, uh, natural navigation. That's another thing. Check, mm -hmm. learning how to acquire your own food, being comfortable by yourself, stilling your mind, all this different stuff, reading the land. It just, you know, it, it brought all these different isolated skills together into like one experience. And it just keeps reinforcing the belief that, you know, hunting is one of the greatest ways to engage with the natural world, at least for me and for a lot of people as well. And I realized this over the years because I'm constantly looking towards other people to see, you know, who are, who are the people who are so knowledgeable about the land here in Pennsylvania where I live? Like, I want to learn from these people. And almost every example I can think of, it's not a mushroom forager. It's not a botanist. It's not a professional ecologist. It's not a zoologist. It's not any of these people. It's a hunter. It's the hunters that I come across. They know so much. Even if it's not every single tree, they could just rattle off all mm -hmm. the scientific names. They know all the processes of photosynthesis and respiration and transpiration. Even if they know, you know, spore morphology and spore dispersal mechanisms and all this fancy stuff. That stuff's neat, but it's like party tricks to know all that stuff. But the hunters, you know, they just... They just have this awareness about them. They have this knowledge. They have this intuition. They have this demeanor. And it's not every single hunter. Like, I know I'm generalizing here. But a lot of the ones that I've come across, you know, across the board, they seem to be the most knowledgeable when it comes to land skills here in Pennsylvania. And I realized that. And that's why I've been digging a little deeper into those skills while still maintaining my tree skills and plant skills and mushroom skills, because that can only help you. Yeah. They complement, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know when this became super popular and common, but I guess the education system had something to do with it and also the factory system and industrialization, but becoming specialized in something. Mm -hmm. And you see that today with people in their skills in nature. People know a lot about mushrooms, and that's it. They know a lot about plants, and that's it. And it's not even just, I know a lot about plants. They'll know maybe one plant they'll do their phd research on this one plant and they'll become a specialist in that one plant and they'll be so smart about it but when it comes to other things they just don't know that much and i guess that's fine you could still go through life you could still be a valuable member of your community you could be a valuable husband or a wife or a brother and all this stuff pay your taxes you're still a good person you know but one of my goals in life is just to become intimately connected to the landscape and so i'm interested in finding the people who already exhibit those skills and like i said it's usually the hunters that are winning by a mile when it comes to those skills and it doesn't surprise me it just seems obvious when you actually go out and hunt that that's the case it's easy to forage for mushrooms i know a lot of people think it's hard but honestly i learned those skills i learned foraging skills plant skills i'm learning animal skills harvesting animals animals is the hardest i think yeah, they don't run it's away. Also the most the mushrooms don't run away. <laughs> the barrier to entry is so low. I mean, there's no regulations here either. Mm -hmm. 
which I mean, that could be a good or bad thing, but you could just go to any plot of land and like find something and pick it. Mm-hmm. You can't just go out into the woods and harvest a deer. Like you have to go through all these loops. Like you have to take a hunter uh, safety course. course. Yeah. You have to the learn course. firearms or learn your weapon, whatever it is. You have mm-hmm. to learn tracking skills. You have to be comfortable being outside for long periods of time. Like I said, you got to get up early, all this stuff. With mushrooms, you can kind of just go out there on your own terms and still yeah. be successful. I know there's there's some poisonous mushrooms out there, but when you learn a few basic skills, you basically can learn it in about a year. I think with hunting, it's just it's a lifetime pursuit. Mm-hmm. I was wondering too, do you have any connection to any indigenous people there in where you live? What's really interesting about Pennsylvania, clearly we had a huge indigenous population here in the past. And we still have a population here today, but we have zero reservations in Pennsylvania. Not like reservations are the greatest thing. It's just, Mm -hmm. to me, it tells me there's still a dense population somewhere of Mm -hmm. indigenous culture. There are zero in the state of Pennsylvania. They've all been moved out. So the closest we have is the Seneca nation up in New York, I believe, which is right across the border. So personally, I don't have much experience because I don't, I never knew many people of indigenous background growing up. Mm-hmm. We never really talked about it in school. It's just so watered down. It's so mm-hmm. general. It's so basic. You're talking about people that never lived here in Pennsylvania because it's just like a cookie cutter education. Uh, there are still some festivals here and there. Uh, but as far as like a big population that you can at least see on a map, like, Hey, at least mm-hmm. it's here in my state. We just yeah. don't really have that in Pennsylvania. Uh, so, I mean, what I'm doing right now is just reading and learning and studying mm-hmm. about it before I take the next step. I don't know what that next step would be, uh, but I don't feel like the smartest move is to just, Hey, show up at their door, knock on the door right. and say, Hey, I want to learn from you. Like, yeah, that just yeah. doesn't seem like an appropriate action to take. The I, learning um, at least right now seems to be not a bad first step. Yeah. It's, it's such a, difficult subject as a, you know, being of a settler population. Um, I, I have the same kind of sim- similar situation here, although there are uh, reservations that are, you know, all over the um, Ontario, but they're, they're quite small compared to, you know, obviously traditional homelands and so on. And it's, it's such a difficult subject. Um, and yeah, you, there's this very strong desire to connect and, and learn, but at the same time, uh, yeah, you, it could be rude, you know, just showing up and saying, hey, <laughs> show me, please help me out here. I'm, I want to be your friend. So, uh, but that's somehow what I did in Malaysia. So maybe, maybe it, it isn't the wrong move. I don't know. I also don't know. But um, hopefully we'll get some more actual Indigenous people here on this, this podcast. That's one of our goals here, actually. Um, so yeah, I'm, there's an interesting book that um, I'm not sure if you, it's called um, Tending the Wild. I don't know if you've heard of it, but very interesting book. Uh, and and I, before you go, I was wondering if there's any books or resources that, that you're reading that you'd like to share, uh, because I'm always looking for new ones to read. Uh, have you read Forgotten Fires? No, I haven't. Uh, let me. So it's. I believe it's, I haven't read Tending the Wild, but I believe it's similar in the sense that it talks about what role humans played in shaping the landscape uh, in North America. 
prior to European colonization. Uh, so I believe it's by Omer Stewart. Uh, and that's a good one. It just talks about the role the fire played in shaping the landscape. Okay. And it goes, I mean, it's a fantastic resource. And I know more and more people today are hip to the fact that, you know, it wasn't just a pristine untouched wilderness here in North mm -hmm. America in 1492 when Columbus came over here, uh, that it was in fact shaped and it was tended to in a way that it's not being tended to today. And so a lot of the landscape today, the reason that it looks the way that it looks is in part due to how it looked prior to industrialization. And if we're interested in making it somewhat resemble what it looked like in the past, which kind of is a weird concept to me, you know, this whole push to make it look exactly how it looked prior to European colonization, because people take extreme measures to carry out that belief. Um, you can't really do it without fire in many parts of the world, especially mm -hmm. here in Pennsylvania. I mean, you could see that many of our landscapes are fire adapted landscapes. And the reason that we have even a lot of oak trees, for example, today here in Pennsylvania is because fires were very common, not pre-industrially, but actually during industrialization, uh, just because of uh, cutting down forests and then setting up industrial activities near forests and fires just accidentally burning through land, and clearing land and byproducts of the uh, coal industry and mining industry. Some of the first trees to come back were oak trees. And so those are the trees that are pretty prominent today all throughout the state. But what's interesting is that we don't have a lot of oak regeneration in the understory. So in maybe 50 to 100 years, 150, 200 years, a lot of the oak forests might not even be common at all throughout Pennsylvania. And instead, we're seeing a lot of maples come up and a lot of cherries come up. Those species are very fire intolerant. So if we would intentionally set fires to the understory, we could potentially keep the oak forests around. I don't know if that's a good idea because, I mean, nature is always constantly changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. And to want to keep something completely static forever is a weird concept to me as well, especially because most people today don't even use oak trees for food which, you know, people did in the past uh, mm -hmm. with acorns and also for utilitarian purposes, using the tannins for different purposes. Uh, but fire could be a potential tool for keeping those oak forests around. I've tried acorns, at least the ones that I harvested from the trees that I did. And it was not, it was not a tasty uh, result. <laughs> but but know I what, know that... what oak species you used? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. That's, that's what I have to, after reading the, uh, Tending the Wild book, which is by M. Cat Anderson, it's very academic. She was saying how the, um, the, the, hers is all about the California Indians, um, that they really selected for certain trees and they would burn all around these trees to keep the understory down and then like, uh, keep vermin down and, and pests down. And then really like they would move their whole camp to these trees. Uh, and they would select certain acorns uh, because they were much more favorable to taste. But I don't, have you harvested much uh, acorn? Okay. Yeah, I've been doing this for maybe seven years or so. Mm -hmm. Not every year, but some years I do it pretty extensively. Uh, but I, I always have bags of acorns just in my basement. And so when I have you know some downtime, which I don't have a lot of these days, but I'll crack them and process them and uh, turn them into flour and the result is delicious. 
So no, that's good. It's just a process of not, I mean, it's just probably you're not leaching it long enough. Maybe I did leach them quite long, but maybe, maybe this wasn't long enough. Could be. Did you do a, a cold leach or a hot leach? Like, did you boil or did you just uh, a good do question. it? It was a few years ago. Water. So I, I don't remember which one I did. What, which one, uh, which one is more effective in getting the, uh, the bitterness out? So personally, I've only done the cold leach method, but I've mm-hmm. attended workshops where people have experimented with the hot leach method. Okay. And I guess they're both effective in removing the tannins, but I think when you want to use the resulting flour for specific purposes, I believe the cold leach method holds up better and can be used okay. in more versatile applications compared to the hot leach method. But I mean, essentially, acorns have tannins in them. Yeah. You just got to get rid of them through mm-hmm. water. I mean, there's other ways you could do it. People use clay, uh, lye, or ash. I think gelatin can be a way to remove tannins and gelatin. acorns. But nowadays, most people just use water. And uh, But as far acor- as... Go ahead. So which oak trees, which oak trees are you harvesting from? So most people will tell you that acorns from the white oak group are better mm-hmm. to use because they're quote lower in tannins. Mm-hmm. I guess generally that's true, but there are some members of the white oak group like chestnut oak, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty high in tannins. The downside about white oak acorns is that they can spoil much more quickly than members of the red oak group. Uh, so mm-hmm. what, I like the harvest is whatever's large and abundant in that given year. And in many years, it's uh, acorns from northern red oak, which is Quercus rubra. That's mm-hmm. probably my go-to acorn. And it takes maybe six or seven days to leach in cold water. But the resulting product is very mild. I mean, there's no bitterness to it. Oh, that's uh, good very little to no astringency. And especially when you make something out of it and you cook with it, you can't tell. I mean, it, it has an acorny kind of flavor when you bake with it, but nothing off-putting. All right, I'm gonna have to try this again and, and uh, look up how to leach it properly again. Cause I don't remember if I leached it and how I did it. I think many changes of water. It definitely wasn't seven days of leaching, I don't think. So there's a good, so. uh, are you familiar with Arthur Haynes? No, the Delta Institute of Natural History. So he's up in Maine. He's a botanist and a taxonomist. He, 10 years ago, would put videos up on YouTube. And one of the videos is how to harvest and process acorns start to finish. Okay. And it's close to 30 minutes. But that's the process that I essentially use. I've tweaked it to some degree. Uh, But that video covers everything. If you just sit through that video and just do what he says, you will have a good product at the end. All right. I'm, I'm motivated now. Next season. Definitely try this out. And there's so many other things I, I could talk about, like ask you about, but we've already gone over an hour and I'm sure you have many things to do with the rest of the day. So maybe we can do this again sometime. I don't know if Tequin, if you have any last questions or um, comments. Yeah, um, no, I, I, yeah we've, we've, we have covered a lot of ground. I've got tons of more questions that I can think of, but maybe you have to save it for another, uh, another session if you, if you're willing. Yeah, great. it'd be great to do a round two. Great. Yeah, so many things come to mind. But for now, I guess thank you so much, Adam, for being uh, being our guest. It was a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It was great talking to both of you.